This is episode 154 of IDRA Class Notes. We now have examples. After 15 years of the implementation of No Child Left Behind, where high poverty, high minority schools are doing well. When leadership and community and educators and other stakeholders come together, those schools get turned around and those kids uh, perform beautifully well. When people of good faith and goodwill decide to do a better thing for the kids and families they serve, when they make up their mind to do that, they do that. Greetings, this is Aurelio Montemayor at IDRA. Welcome back to our podcast. With me is Dr. Bradley Scott, who for quite a while has been the director of our Equity Assistance Center. We're going to be talking about education civil rights challenges. In 1954, the United States Supreme Court declared segregated schools unconstitutional. It was an important point in the long battle that had preceded it. You, Dr. Scott, have been in the battle for several decades and have been able to track the successes and the challenges from the 70s to the present through your programmatic work, through your leadership. I'm going to ask you, what are some critical learnings for you and what is your counsel to those who want children's rights in public education to be respected, protected, and valued? Well, and that is a big question, Aurelio, but I'm glad to have this conversation with you. In the whole... I think one of the learnings we have is that this work is not easy and it has to be constantly attended to because if it's not, we slip back into old ways of thinking, acting, and behaving. And I have learned, and so have others, that it's that falling back into our traditional patterns of thinking, acting, and behaving that causes some of the persistent challenges that we have seen over time. The underperformance of minority and linguistically different kids in public schools. Historically, that has been a problem and a challenge. It continues to be one. The question is, after all of these years, 50 years of desegregating schools, 50 years of talking about the civil rights of different kinds of learners in school, why are we still confronted with the underachievement of identifiable populations? The same thing is true with regards to linguistically different populations. Why are they underachieving in comparison to their counterparts? How is it that we still have disproportionate representation of boys of color in disciplinary programs and actions and their exclusion from public school through suspensions and expulsions and ultimately being channeled toward a prison pipeline rather than to graduating and going on to college. Why do we continue to see these persistent problems? How is it that we still don't connect well with the families of kids who speak a different first language, who are poor, who are by race different colors and culturally different, that we fail to connect with them, we we fail to honor and respect their voices? What persistent realities exist within the systemic structures of uh, schools and what they do and in communities and what they do that cause these kinds of challenges to continue. Well, you know, one thing that we hear right now from, certainly from schools, from teacher groups saying is we are helpless in the face of poverty. 
What's your response to that? That poverty has something to do with it, but it doesn't have everything to do with it. And what we're facing can be explained by poverty alone. So I'm of the opinion, and I have learned, that we still have prejudices and biases. There's still racism and classism and sexism that says that, of course, we're all equal under the law. But some of us are more equal than others. Of course, we all have rights under the law, but some of us have more rights than others. Of course, education should work for everybody, but it should certainly work for my child first, as opposed to those kids and their families. So we still have these prejudices, these biases that still create a basis for continual individual and systemic discrimination that privileges some groups and disenfranchises other groups. It's a challenge. Where do you get evidence that, in fact, there could be success? Uh, How is it that, for example, you can say that it's something inherent in the institution and not in the culture or the child? Because we now have examples. After 15 years of the implementation of No Child Left Behind, we do have some rich examples where high poverty, high minority schools are doing well. We don't have as many as we should want to be able to see at this point in time, but... When leadership and community and educators and other stakeholders come together and make up their minds that they're going to to do a different thing for learners, create a different educational experience for their learners, those schools get turned around and those kids uh, perform beautifully well. You and I have a colleague who's been able to turn a failing school around that was high minority, high poverty, linguistically different and be able to turn that into a school that was so successful, and I know this sounds anecdotal, but so successful that they were highlighted in a major American publication. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it can happen. We do have evidence of these schools being able to succeed, but it's about the different kinds of decisions that the stakeholders have to make. And I'm saying that same thing is true in terms of some of these persistent challenges. When people of good faith and goodwill decide to do a better thing for the kids and families they serve, when they make up their mind to do that, Aurelio, they do that. Well, give me an example of, let's say I'm an administrator or a campus principal or even a superintendent. What are some key things in my decisions that have to come into play? Let me give you a graphic example that I worked with more than a year. One of our Texan schools where a white superintendent simply began to raise the question in his own mind. Why are we sending so many black and brown boys to our DAEPs? Why does that continually happen? What's a DAEP? It's a a Discipline Alternative Education Program. And why does that continue to happen? In his mind, it did not make sense to channel these minority boys off into that kind of a system that obviously was not serving them well and not Mm. giving them what they needed for school success. It was more expensive. It led to no good thing for those boys or for the school system. And so he challenged his own leadership and the community to engage with him in an examination of what was going on to cause this overrepresentation of minority boys in their DAEPs and to create resolutions and recommendations for the board so that the district could begin to take new and different action. It was a challenging program, but they brought the citizens together with the educators. They got into tough questioning. They got into uh, sometimes uh, real arguments about 
who was to blame, and his position was, we are all to blame. If we're failing kids, we are all to blame, and we are all responsible. So let's get past blame and talk about what do we do responsibly to change this around. It took a lot of courage on his part. He used his position of leadership in a very powerful way. He got other high-powered community folks of all races, black, brown, and white, to come together around this problem, this challenge for the district. And I'm saying it that's the kind of well, courage. It took some courage, but also some intelligence and some thinking it through. And some perceptiveness uh, yeah. about what was really going on. Because absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I'm not as concerned, although it's bad, the prejudice of an individual that says bad things to me because of my class or my race. I'm more concerned about those structural That's things right. that are in place. They always say, well, it's not my fault. That's just the way it is. Just These kids drop out or they misbehave. We have to send them over there. You know, in Texas, we've experienced that, for example, who was used originally for high, serious, serious things that would happen in school would be life-threatening. Now for spinning in the hall, they can send you out there. And it just so happens that the boys of color are just sent there all the time. All the time. Just, yeah. yeah. Well, what's another example? Let's think from a teacher point of view. What is it that I, as a teacher, have to redo or think so that these children learn in my class? Right. So I think, and if we can't move institutions of higher education to prepare our teachers for a very diverse and learning that's a whole big conversation. And that's another conversation <laughs> yeah. in itself. We really have to, in our in-service practice, do what we can to support teachers to be able to look at their pedagogical practice and make different kinds of decisions about what do I need to do? How do I need to structure what I'm teaching so that I can reach all of my learners. So culturally relevant pedagogy, in my mind, becomes hugely important. And if teachers have not already been trained into that in their professional practice, then they need help with that. They need support for that. They need to be able to see coaches and mentors who can come into their classes and do side-by-side teaching with them, do job-embedded coaching with them, working with their real students in a real classroom experience, and be able to watch someone working with their their children, then be able to ask questions and train me on adapting my curriculum so that it reaches different kinds of learners in different kinds of ways so that it connects with them to increase their likelihood that they're going to be able to perform better and more competently with regards to whatever the requirements of that course actually are. You know, that reminds me, yeah, you, you've heard it story often that these parents we were working with in South Texas went to survey a high school in the early days of No Child at Night because they got the letter that the school was not doing well in math. The kids weren't in their test. And they thought that maybe the teachers weren't certified. And when they went, the the head of the math department, as an aside, told one of the ladies, this high school had maybe 2,000 kids, 99% Latino, mostly poor. Said, no, ma'am, not more than 10% of our kids can handle algebra. I can believe it. Yeah. I had an experience myself uh, where a staff, almost to a person, even including the Latino staff members, were of the opinion that most of the kids were going to be like their parents and end up dropping, and this was a middle school, dropping out of school before they graduated and will go on the migrant stream. And I had to stop them at a point in time and say, listen, you don't know me from Adam. If you're saying this about your students, what are you going to be saying to your students on a day-to-day basis? This was just two years ago. This happened at an an opening in-service session. And I thought to myself, these poor kids don't have a chance if their teachers already think 
that low of them. There's no aspiration in that. There is no expectation in that. It's fraught with a low way of thinking about their possibilities, and that's the environment you're you know, going to create I, I, for I, them. You, both you and I have experienced this as classroom teachers, that teachers and leaders collude with each other. Absolutely. Well, you might be of color, you grew up poor, but you've taken on this institutional point of view. You've taken on that institutional yeah. point of view, and thank you for putting it that way because it is. And what happens even with new teachers, they get trained into that mm-hmm. uh, by the quote-unquote experienced yes. teachers, the seasoned teachers. Now sit teachers. down. This and, is the way we run things. And this is the way <laughs> it works here. You know, So we have to watch all of that because I'm saying that the entire educational experience of learners is then fraught with that kind of thinking. It is found in the hidden curriculum and in the way that even formal curriculum is presented, in the expectations and the attitudes of these stakeholders in that setting. And it reflects, I say, what is already real in the community. So if you have an unhealthy community and it, in terms of relations, it is reflected in the life of the school. And so I think all of that has to be dealt with when we start talking about transforming the educational experiences of learners. You know, you've been focusing on, on key things uh, seeing the child as learner and their underperformance, the misbehavior that might be triggered by the fact that school is boring or they're lost and all these other things. What do you see in the middle of that? Is it is it professional development? Is how we train our teachers? How we train our administrators? In terms of our equity assistance center, uh, there are some key benchmark spaces that you want to interact with. So yes, professional development is a part of that. But I also think that administrators need help, professional development, and support for knowing how to guide. First of all, have vision, and then to guide the implementation of vision that speaks to excellence for all and equity for all, uh, where you have equitable treatment and equitable access and equitable inclusion and an equitable opportunity to learn uh, with the right resource support. So that's critical decision-making. Board members need that same kind of training and support for promulgating the right kinds of policies that don't discriminate and don't exclude. But I also think parents need that training and support to be able to not only uh, have a voice, but to own their voice, to recognize it, and then to use that voice as advocates for their kids in schools and see themselves as equal partners with the other education stakeholders in building quality educational experiences for kids. So that kind of development, the professional development and support and also appropriate resource allocation is true for everybody who affects and is affected by the system of public education. Dr. Scott, thank you for this conversation. My pleasure. It's great talking to you. Thank you for listening to IDRA Class Notes. For more information on IDRA and other Class Notes topics, go to www.idra.org. You can also send us your thoughts by email to podcast at idra.org.